0: hey everybody this is andrew bensley co-host of community notice board podcast and a former guest at the uh the anti-social podcast uh just telling you guys to come check mine out the community notice board. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, I do there's it. not a gun to his head right now i promise you it seems like there is but uh, yeah listen guys we do a great podcast called community notice board we've had some great guests on in the past becky lucas luke heggie and that's what i reckon And James, what's the pot about?
1: It's about suburbs we grew up in. So we talk about uh, the guest's local history with the place, uh, must-see places that you have to visit, uh, coming-of-age tales, and the hometown heroes that we just can't forget.
0: Yeah, so give it a listen on on all podcast apps and all that sort of shit. Hell yeah. And yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah.
1: Hey, welcome back to the Anti Social Podcast, and this episode is proudly brought to you by these bloody legends. Thank you very much to Andrew from Perth, Mick G from Sydney, Ash from Diniloquin, Dan from Dapto, Rod from Raleigh in North Carolina, Patrick from Canberra, Liam from Brisbane, Chris from Sydney, Brendo from Leeton, Tim from Canberra, James from Brisbane, Christian from Canberra, and Steve from the Gold Coast. Thank you so much, folks. These guys are my top tier supporters over at Patreon, a small part of my larger community of legends who are just backing your mate Andy here and his little old podcast, the Anti Social Podcast. Podcasts. go to patreon.com slash andy supports us from only a buck a month dirt cheap if you want free shit then you can access that via the additional tiers there go and check it all out patreon.com slash andy dowling
0: hey
1: gather around folks another episode of me little old podcast here the Andy social podcast and this is episode 274 We're creeping closer and closer to that three double zero number, getting, getting closer. But, uh, this episode is with a return guest, somebody who I've been looking forward to speaking to for quite some time. And we have the perfect reason, the perfect excuse to catch up. Emma Jane Holmes, who was on episode 145 is a death care professional, a mortician, and uh, now an author. She's got a book out. Uh, and if you listen to this episode on time, This book is out today. So when you're out and about today, go into a bookstore. If you're walking past a bookstore today, you listen to the podcast out and about. Go into any bookstore that, I don't know, sells books. That's a great description. And go and grab her book, One Last Dance. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. I'm going to put a picture so you can have a look and see what it looks like. Emma Jane Holmes, One Last Dance, a fantastic book. Um, At the time of recording this intro... I am three quarters of the way through the book, and it is a fantastic read. Uh, it is going into detail about what her life in the funeral funeral industry has been, and uh, it's just, and tied in with her personal life as well, and just a, a fantastic read so far, and highly, highly recommended for anybody out there. It's, I think it's just absolutely great. This is a fantastic chat. It was great to catch up with Emma again, and uh, we spoke about... Uh, a little bit more about, um, over the years of working in the funeral industry, but of course, you know, what's happened since we last caught up and, and now releasing this fantastic book. So get behind it guys. I want the Andy social faithful to go and pick up a copy of this book, go and, uh, go and support great people doing great things. And Emma's really sort of pushed herself outside of the comfort zone to, put a spotlight on an industry that has been very much behind closed doors for uh, forever so uh, definitely a lot of courage here and uh, it's a it's a, it's a fantastic read I can't can't talk it up enough so enough crapping on for me please enjoy this great chat with Emma Jane Holmes I'm so pumped and look I've got a I've got oh, I was going to leave it to the end but I'm just gonna get all the all the uh, administration housekeeping stuff out of the sure. way, but uh, a, a massive sure. thank you for throwing my name on the back of the book as well. I mean, oh, that's such a cool I, little moment for me. And
0: um, I should have asked you, but I was just, I'm just so grateful because you're one of the first interviews I was ever been a part of and it meant so much to me. I was like, Oh, I hope he doesn't mind, and I just—that <laughs> you know, was my gift to you—to say thank you so much for taking an interest in me.
1: Oh, my my pleasure, and and uh, I certainly never expect anything back in return. So this was like out of the blue, such a great <laughs> su- surprise. It was just fantastic, and and um like like you would know. I mean, the process to put something like this together is it's a it's yeah. a long road, and um just just from my experience, just in the tail end of this, is I got contacted. Oh, last year sometime and uh was asked about it and so just gave them whatever they needed and just left it with them sort of do whatever oh. you need to do and um Did
0: they they oh, are the publishing world are sneaky they
1: are yeah and so <laughs> <laughs> and then just out of the blue you know a couple of weeks ago i get uh, i get your book in the mail and i'm just like oh shit that's right i forgot all about this oh,
0: and awesome and it
1: is it is so cool and Look, I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. This was almost like cramming for a test because I thought, I've got to try and read this book before we chat. And <laughs> I've got the book in front of me. I'm holding it up. And the bookmark is sitting just over halfway through because I started oh, – wow. Because I started oh. reading it this morning. <laughs> oh,
0: well, it's, not exact, it's not exactly a work of literature. It's, pretty, it's a pretty easy read. I've made it that way because not many people read anymore. So I thought – I'm just going to try and keep it as simple as I can, so people will actually read it. So you're doing well. That's awesome. It, Thank you.
1: It's it's a it's a great read so far, and the only reason I put it down is literally to give you a call. Um, and <laughs> I've been I've been multitasking today. If only there was a fly on the wall that could just see me because I've literally paced around my unit oh. um, reading this book. And I've done. I checked my phone. I've done like thirteen thousand steps today. Answering other Ooh. phone calls and doing other work, and then grabbing the book, putting it down, picking it up again, and uh, it's been it's been Aww. a really great read so far. So, um, thank so far, you. so good. Well done. So uh, amazing. Thank you. That's uh, it's all eventuated in this book. But
0: you work harder than me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, it's a Who perception. It's just on the surface. It looks like I work hard. Yeah, yeah. But uh, behind the scenes, different story.
0: Well, thank you for taking the time.
1: No, not a problem at all. And I guess probably a good place to start is where we kicked off from last time because
0: sure
1: I think we were talking and I think the concept of the book was in the works, the idea was there and I don't mm. know how far along that was and in mm. between the last time we spoke and now, um a lot sort of happened in in from your perspective in, in your world. Um I mean there's so many so many questions to ask, but I guess to begin with, I mean sure. where where did this sort of start as far as were you approached to with the concept of the book? And I think we might've spoken about a little bit of this, but then I guess what has that sort of pathway been over the past several years to get to the point now where you've got a physical book?
0: Oh, wow. Well, let me just say when I was a little girl and I wanted to be a writer, when I grew up, I did not know that developing a book consisted of this. (laughs) So let's just say that Um, it it was really serendipity. i'm just I'm one of those really blessed people that um just happened to get picked up by an agent. I sent a few chapters, horrible chapters, so I have no idea how it got picked up. But I sent some chapters to an agent, and uh, at first it was rejected. I received that rejection letter, and I experienced that heartache, and I, I would almost call it a grieving process, you know, your dreams are shattered in one letter and <laughs> and then suddenly a year later, so I turned my back on, I, I kept writing my blog anonymously, I thought okay well I don't need to have a published book, you know, I'm writing for me, for no one else and if anyone does read my words, well lucky me and totally forgot about everything, got over it. Okay, breathe, move on. And then I get an email out of the blue a year later from the agency. Oh, we really like this now. Are you ready to write the book? I was (laughs) like, oh, my goodness. So um, it was just, yeah, I just call myself one of the lucky ones. I, I, yeah, I did not expect it to happen. And then from there I would send chapters to my agent every three months and she would say, yes, stay on this track, stay on that track. So that took about another year and then another year probably to uh, shape it well enough to get, you know, picked up by a publisher because just because you have an agent, that doesn't automatically mean you've got a publisher Mm. either. So you do all those hard yards, but it's not, you know, the golden ticket to publication. And um, it wasn't looking good at first because a lot of publishers were finding it hard, um, you know, the two worlds. And they said, oh, you know, our audience, it's not going to appeal to many people because, you know, there's such a, it's such a polarity. You know, you've mm. got death and then you've got sex and our audience, it's going to be really hard to find a target audience for this. And my um, I, yeah, I heart sank again it's just up and down it's seriously that cliche roller coaster ride that people talk about when you're going through something like you know a big life event and yeah lucky me i got i finally got picked up by a publisher so the road from that very first letter from the agent to holding the book oh my goodness it, it's it's something like i can't even put into words it has been such a long journey hard journey But my goodness, to have that cover in your hands, you think, oh, my goodness, I did this. So it's just amazing.
1: You must have so much patience because I can't think of anything more painful (laughs) than sending, like, every three months, you know, a few chapters to an agent to be checking. Like, for me, I just, and I don't have a comparison because I've never never written a book or anything Um, like that.
0: You're right star, you know exactly what it's like. <laughs> you're writing your music and then performing. It's it's all the same. It's arts, the arts, it's all the same. You're putting your heart into every, you know, and it's like I'm not a mother, and I I don't I hope I don't offend anyone to use this analogy. Of course, because I can't relate, but I I assume it feels like being a mum to something. It's like you're giving it everything, but you're not getting anything back for a really long time until adolescence, or when they're an adult, and then they go, "Oh, thanks, mum, for all that hard work you did for me when you were a little when I was a little kid." So that's what I imagine it's like. You know, you you work so hard for so little. Feedback and then suddenly, um, yeah, it happens. So I can imagine it's the same for you when you write your music or you're performing and you've got your fans calling out your name and you think, yeah, that's that's why I'm doing this.
1: Yeah, I guess so. I guess I guess it might be like when you're writing writing music and you might be putting a demo together and you t- it's like the drafts and you're trying to draft the music and that can take a long a long time before you get yes, to the final, yes. the final single or the album or whatever you put out. So I guess I guess it is sim- uh, similar.
0: Absolutely. It's good to have someone that can resonate with that process, that creative process, because it's not just sitting down at the computer and writing a few chapters and then ta you've got a book. So it's really great to chat to somebody that understands that creative process a little better. You know, it's hard work.
1: And as you said, it's a roller coaster as well. Like it's you know there would no doubt be moments along the way. It's just like, well, am I just putting too much energy into this? Is this is this becoming obsessive? Yeah. You know, do I? Is this is this ultimately what I really want to do? Do I really want to put a book out? And all those all those thoughts would come oh. coming in and out constantly.
0: Oh, the amount of times that I've changed my mind, and I'm so glad I never wrote that letter. But I tell you, I I nearly sat down and drafted a letter so many times saying. I back out, I can't do this, but so I'm so glad I never sent that letter.
1: <laughs> how, how did you feel when you took the blog offline and made that private while you worked on this? Because I, I would assume by that point you probably would have had a lot of satisfaction with, you know, obviously writing to begin with, but then having a little bit of a public place where people could enjoy what you're doing. Was that, was that difficult to sort of make that decision to, to take it all offline and, and not know for how long?
0: Absolutely, it was. It was. Um, I remember the evening that I did co- like. I I sat down and I collectively read all the blog posts and then I clicked the delete button. Mm. And I thought, and I just, I just got home from working on a funeral actually. And I remember thinking, wow, it's a bit like life. One minute it's here and the next it's gone forever. And I remember clicking the delete button because I believe. I mean, it was a long time ago now, but I believe the blog server I was using. Once you delete your blog, that's it. Mm. So you're not gonna get it back. But deep down I thought, no, this is gonna be a book, so that's even better. So, you know, I tried to find comfort in that that all those stories, all those late nights I was up writing, that maybe one day someone you know, a, a greater audience will be able to read those stories.
1: And the identity thing's a massive a massive aspect of all oh. of this. I mean, you know, trying to stay out of the firing line of of employment and reputation in in a professional sense but wanting to express yourself and and tell these stories. I mean we spoke about a bit of this last time but I assume that was probably amplified over the past couple of years where you've been getting closer to to putting this book out where I mean have you been thinking about what the reaction's going to be like when this is when this is out, you know, on the third? Oh,
0: Andy, <laughs> Andy that is so the um that was the hardest. I think you know the late nights and everything that I've already explained to you. I think the hardest part of this experience, my two passions in life, is caring for the dead and writing. And I felt like I had to choose between the two. I hope I don't cry. <laughs> but I, I remember, I, I remember feeling like oh, I remember being at a crematory and I got the phone call from a publisher and. I had just cremated a human being and that is the greatest privilege on this planet and I'm staring at her bones thinking which one do I choose because I knew in that moment if I choose the book I may never cremate another human being ever again but if I choose the funeral industry oh my goodness I may never get you know I may never get this opportunity again and it kept me up all night every night for a very long time I accepted, obviously, the um, I signed the publication contract and I went to work every day with this awful, guilty dread inside. Am I doing the right thing? Do I really want to choose publication over the funeral home? And, yes, it was that identity massive crisis. It was terrible, awful, and I nearly backed out so many times. But I know that I will go back into the industry I'm a little old lady (laughs) and all this is done and dusted and everyone forgets all about it, hopefully, because I I do fear that there may be some death care professionals that will have their nose put out that I have shared these stories. But Mm. I feel like I'm actually speaking for the dead who can no longer talk for themselves anymore. Like, I really want so many people to know how beautiful the death care industry is. So I feel like that's my purpose if I never get to polish a coffin ever again, yes, that's sad, but at least I got to maybe reach a few people out there who are grieving or maybe I've helped people who have all these myths and misconceptions swirling around in their brain. Maybe I've taken that away, and to me that's worth it, I think.
1: How long's it been since you've been actively working in the industry?
0: Oh! It will be a year, it will be a year next month that I that I haven't worked in a funeral home and yeah, yeah, it's been, it's been a bumpy emotional experience because I miss it very much but yeah, you know, this is my dream to be a writer so I just have to grab it while, you know, with both hands. This is a massive opportunity that not many people get so... I hope the dead are proud of me. <laughs> I, <laughs> hope like, I, I picture the like the ghosts with pom-poms saying, yeah, you're doing the right thing. Go for it. <laughs>
1: so. I mean, I can't believe, I can't begin to imagine just how challenging the last 12 months would be because I mean, I'm, I'm as I said, like I'm just over halfway through the book. I'm, um, currently, I'll tell you where I'm up to. I'm up to chapter 36 lap Dances. So there you go for people, oh, of for people listening. You are. Maybe uh, yeah.
0: skip that chapter. <laughs> Maybe. When my, actually, my mum texted me only today because I, I gave her a copy of the book and I said, Mum, you're allowed to read part one and part three. Skip part two. Anyhow, she's on a road trip at the moment and she sent me a text today saying, I finished part one. Do I keep going? I said, okay, mum, you can read part two, but skip the chapter lap dances, please. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where you're at. So maybe you could just skip that chapter as well. Well, but, we won't, look,
1: have, we won't have to talk about it right now, but uh, so look, it's, it could be. It's,
0: it's pretty tame. It's pretty tame. <laughs> it, there's nothing too risque,
1: hopefully. Hey, whatever whatever it takes to sell a few more books, I'm sure that, uh, I'm sure that it might pick a few people's interest now going, oh, that sounds a... Uh, Extra dynamic there to the book and to the story. There you go. Um, but it must, it must've been hard over the past 12 months. Cause you know, what I've read so far and the way that you described it, I mean, it's certainly given so many extra layers of detail about not only your experiences, but the way that you've interpreted it, like the way that you've taken it on board, you've embraced it and, and looking at situations from like this glass half full perspective where, you know, the general public would certainly not look at it from that angle. So, I think I'm just—I mean, it must have—it must have been really challenging the last twelve months to not have that uh, a large part of your life.
0: Yes, I and i have harped on a little bit in the book about it, but funeral directors were a lucky bunch to be reminded on a daily basis of our own mortality and how important it is to live every... I mean, it's such a cliche thing to say, but live every day as if it is your last because we knew every day that it could be. And I do miss that. I miss those daily reminders because now I've noticed I do get hasty in traffic when I never used to when I was a funeral director. (laughs) When I was a funeral director, traffic didn't bother me because I was alive. I'm happy. I, I didn't have to be transferred last night into, you know... mortuary so when you when that's taken away yeah i've felt like fallen back into those little habits i get grumpy easier and i you know i just missed it it was such a big part of my life i was a funeral director for so long and um yeah you miss the little things and it's things that you know i won't discuss because people will think i'm even weirder but simple things like polishing a coffin like that was my everyday reality walking (laughs) in and polishing a coffin in the morning or or you know putting hot rollers in a dead lady's hair. That made my day. So it was a really hard first six months. But thankfully, I've found a new career, which I'm also excelling at. And it gives me such a beautiful, rewarding feeling at the end of the day. Thank goodness, because otherwise I'd be an even bigger mess than what I am right now.
1: And I think also, it, you know, doing the book, it sort of scratches that itch where you are giving back to the industry and you're giving back to what has been a taboo topic for generations and putting a different shade over it. And, and I think a lot of people, hopefully, when they read it, will will look at these events that we all go through multiple times in our life, um, you know, from family and friends and people we we bump into and just look at it slightly differently and not be so fearful or put so much dread and misery around something that is just, it's a, it's a natural and normal thing.
0: Yeah. Thank you. And misery is the perfect word. Um, I actually have a family member in my life at the moment. He's very unwell. And, yeah, I'm watching him slowly, like his life slowly seep out of him. And and it is a miserable feeling. So I can understand completely why there is so much misery attached to death. However, um, that's exactly what I intended to do with the book is yes you're absolutely right we're all going to experience this we have our loved ones who pass away and there is nothing more heartbreaking in the world but I just really wanted to show people that life is for living and we're going to die soon so let's try and have some fun while we're at it I also really wanted to shine a light for the funeral directors. So I just wanted to say, I know there's going to be a lot of funeral directors out there that are like, oh, I can't believe she wrote a book about it. Because when you work at a funeral home, secrecy is the most important factor. You're not Mm. allowed to talk about anything. You're not allowed to go home at the end of the day and tell your family what you did. You feel like you're in some sort of secret club that no one's allowed to know (laughs) anything about. So I do know there's going to be some people out there in the industry that are going to be a bit upset with me. But I hope deep down there a little bit proud because I really wanted to shine a light on how amazing they are because there's so many misconceptions about funeral directors in general, about how they use grief to fill their wallets, etc., etc. And I really wanted people to see that funeral directors actually care so much. So I don't want people out there thinking, oh, my mum my has just passed away and those crook funeral directors are probably not even looking after her. I just really wanted people to know that Death care professionals care so much about your loved one, and I really hope that that, that people can see that in the book when they read it. That they realise that we're actually just everyday people with huge hearts that care about people.
1: You've you've added the uh, the human element to it, which which sounds quite funny to to verbalise describe it that way. But you've 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 added you've added personality to to an industry that, as you said, is it's very much. Uh, behind closed doors, there's not a lot of information, and the only time we ever we ever hear about the industry is when it affects us personally, and mm. we're usually too swept up off our feet, like with emotions, to really understand what's going on. We see these people; they come in, they you know they they do the things that they traditionally do to help the service mm-hmm. you know go through what all those steps. And that's about it. And then they go off into the distance, and you just don't think about them again until the next tragedy mm-hmm. happens. So, I, I like. I think. I think you've done a great job of, of doing that in the book. And I guess time will tell if uh, if sort of the wider wider population agrees. <laughs> I, mean, I'd be, I mean, I'd love to. Yeah. I'd love to know how the industry reacts to it, and how certain people that have been a part of the industry for a long time, because it's usually the people that are that are that have carved out a very long career, which are usually you know probably. You know, traditionally a little bit more stubborn or or maybe not as open-minded yeah. about different ways of uh, portraying what they do and there'd be a lot of pride of course in in the industry yeah. so we'll we'll see but um i think yeah i just think you've done a great job with with um the way that oh, you've, you. you've added character and to there it. are,
0: and you know there are a lot of you you're perfect at your at um your insight are there a uh, there are some old school, fu- they're my favorite, by the way, there are some old school funeral directors out there that are in their 80s and they've been in the business for 50 years and, you know, the funeral industry has evolved and it's changed and it's it's just like any other industry, you know, um, I believe I, I've left the industry now 12 months ago, but when I was leaving, coffin showrooms were going to be a thing of the past, so you know, you used to walk through a funeral, and that's my favorite part. you walk through a funeral home and you'd see these beautiful coffins on display and they're gorgeous and shiny. And, I, you know, on a quiet day, you'd go in and polish them. But now there's a TV screen, I believe. I haven't been since it's all changed. I haven't seen it firsthand. But I believe a lot of funeral homes now. There's just a plasma. And during the arrangement, the funeral director will have a remote control and show the family the coffins on a giant screen. So I can totally understand those old-school fuel directors that have been there since day one before fancy devices and before the nifty lowering machine. And all of these modern technologies that have been introduced to the industry, of course they're going to feel a little bit, you know, disgruntled and be like, oh, you know, the funeral industry isn't what it used to be, and it's not. And I really just wanted to represent them all. The old, the young, the ones that are just starting out. I wanted to be there for all of the different generations of funeral directors, and I, I hope, I hope I've done that. I think I've added almost every age group in the book that I've come across in the industry.
1: I think, I think the without, I mean, I don't know if I'm using technical terms at all, but like the tone that you've used in the in the book is it's very it's I mean, it's obviously you. It's your, it's your personality that 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 shines through the book, but you're not writing it like. you're you're forcing a particular age group. You're not forcing, like, I'm going to write like I'm sort of in my 20s or in my 30s or I'm going to try and write for that 70 to 80 age bracket. You're just sort of writing in this very wide range that sort of ticks a lot of boxes for different different people from different backgrounds. And so I think probably the old school folks who, who get to read it will probably appreciate a lot of the stuff where you're sort of, in a way, tipping your hat towards, you know, the the respect that you're giving to to the individuals who have deceased and the way that you sort of approach them and and the whole uh the whole mindset that you've had and the whole sort of perspective of of the industry and and how you've conducted yourself and i think they'll appreciate that whereas probably some of the younger people that are coming through would appreciate some of the other stuff where you're you're taking a bit more of an unorthodox approach with with uh how you're describing the events and, and just your personal story as well
0: thank you so much and you know that's hard. It's harder to do than you think. (laughs) It's like and and actually it's funny you mentioned that. Um, when you're when you write a book, um, there is a very the most important thing about writing a book is your voice. And your voice is what makes your book you. It's why when you're reading a book, you can almost hear the author's voice when you're reading it. And it's something that you can't develop. A voice is just your voice you've either got it or you haven't when you're writing a book. And it's really interesting. I wrote the first draft, the second draft, the third draft, the fourth, and I felt like my voice was slowly getting taken out of the manuscript. I felt like, and, and you know, the publishers have created it into the gem it is today, but I was so afraid of my voice being too manufactured. Um, You know, lots of sentences were taken out, metaphors were taken out, the way I talk was taken, a lot of, there was so much taken out of the book. And I was so afraid that my voice would be completely deleted so I'm so grateful that you could still feel my voice in what you've read so far (laughs) because I was so afraid that Emma Jane wouldn't be left it was just a manufactured manufactured sorry narrative but I'm so glad that you can still hear some of me in there
1: oh definitely (laughs) definitely I mean it oozes out and I think it also helps that we've had a chat before in the past so I sort of had had your voice in the back of my head as, as I'm reading, it's like you're reading me the story. So it's like, Oh, this is, this is absolutely fascinating. Uh, so maybe, maybe for people that, cause I'll, I'm going to get people to go back and have a listen to the last episode as well, but just in case people don't listen to it, or this, maybe this is the first chat that they've heard um, with yourself. Do you want to maybe just give a quick crash course of some of the things that you were doing in the industry, just so people can understand a bit of context around what, what your role was and the types of things that you did.
0: Sure. So when I first entered the industry, and anybody that usually first begins their career as a funeral director, you'll start out as a FDA. And that acronym stands for Funeral Director's Assistant. So as a funeral director's assistant, you pretty much do everything. So you'll polish the hearses, you'll polish the coffins, you'll build the coffins to a degree. Coffins arrive. Uh, to the funeral home as like a shell. And we nail on the handles and the crucifixes and the nameplate. We carve the nameplate. We will go out onto funerals and help the funeral director, the funeral conductor with the funeral. There's so many roles in the funeral home. Like when I first started, I thought you'd just be a funeral director. Mm. But you start off as an FDA, then you can become a funeral conductor, which the name suggests. You conduct the service on the day. So I was at FTA for about two or three years off and on. Um, I was also a beauty therapist. So I would go back to the beauty salon in between um, some, you know, I had some time off here and there, but all up for about three years, I was an FTA. And then I used those beauty therapy skills to become the mortician. So I had that on my side. I knew how to apply some lipstick and I knew how to smash. A good blush, you know, good contouring. So I was blessed to also become a mortician later on in my. I don't even think you and I. This is after you and I chatted, actually. Absolutely I think it be. yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think after we chatted, I became a full-time mortician. So I rarely left the mortuary. Um, I was blessed to receive a role in a regional town, which was lovely. So I I was the only mortician on the on the books. So I did everybody. And so I was in the mortuary most most of the day. So I'd be bathing them and washing their hair and dressing them and applying the makeup, doing the hair, making sure they look beautiful on the big day. I would be present for the viewing. So when the family arrived, um, I would you know quickly do the finishing touches and I'd be present if they had any questions. So yeah, I think that was the most rewarding part of it all. Was all that lead up to it to become that full time mortician was just yeah, it's the most mind-blowing part of the whole role for me. So, yeah, I did all of that. I, I went on transfers. I, part of your role as a funeral director, it doesn't matter if you're a mortician or a funeral arranger, a conductor, everybody takes turns on being on call. So you take the phone home for the evening and anybody who passes away during the night, 1 a.m., 3 a.m., midnight, 8 p.m., it's usually, when you are cooking dinner, you get called out on the road and you jump in the van and you drive to the home or the hot wherever it is they pass away, and you take them back to the funeral home. So basically that's well, not basically there's so much to it, but yeah, that that's that's what I did in my time in the death industry.
1: There's so much there's so much detail you go into in this book where you talk about just some of the, Specific events along the way, and and I'll just I think just for people that are listening, you've you've changed names, you changed business names, you yes. changed locations, you've done a lot of work and a lot you put a lot of effort in to to protect and and just make sure that you show respect and not not sort of uh, draw any direct links to any particular people or events along the way. But when I when I read these stories, I'm just. I'm blown, I'm absolutely blown away because I mean, you, you read stuff online and I think you shared a couple of stories last time we caught up and I just, you just, as you've, as you've highlighted, you know, multiple times, it's like people just don't see it. People don't understand what, what the funeral industry is and, and the types of things mm. that you've got to do behind the scenes. And there are yeah. multiple roles and, you know,
0: absolutely. it's
1: such an eye opener.
0: Yes, like when I tell people, um, you know, I, I've also been, sorry, I should have thrown in there I was a crematory assistant also, so people don't realise that a funeral director has so many hats that he puts on literally, <laughs> we wear hats, um, we, yeah, one minute we could be wearing shiny shoes and a tie, but the next we could be in really short shorts scrubbing down the hearses and scrubbing the mortuary floor on a quiet day, um, you know, helping the grave digger with a grave that's filled with water. Um, oh, my goodness. We could be at the crematory climbing into the retort, dusting it out. Like, there are so many. I I, I don't even know if I could remember them all. Like, everything that we do, it's just insane. It's Nobody realises. And that's why I really wanted to tell the story because – People have no idea. My uncle lives next door to a funeral home, and he has no idea what he's living next door to. <laughs> when I tell him some of the shit, I'll, I'll see the sensor light come on, and I'll be, oh, yeah, that's what they're doing there, or I'll see the white van come in. Oh, that's what they're doing. He goes, how do you, really, they do all of that? I said, you have no idea what we do. I really think that funeral directors are little superheroes. seriously. It, it never ends. It never stops, and, and people just have no idea that that goes on.
1: I mean, it's it definitely takes a certain type of person where maybe in other industries, you know, people are compelled to, especially now with like, you know, social media and, and everyone's expressing themselves and they want to be seen and get attention. And I think just for such a fascinating industry, you would think that anybody working in this industry would want just everybody to know and would just be chomping at the bit to just tell, you know, tell all these great stories. Mm-hmm. And obviously with these... You know these protections in place to keep everything private and 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 be behind closed doors. Um, it would be you would only be able to tr- attract certain so- sorts of people that are able to just find the satisfaction in their work and not have to mm. feel the itch of having to boast about it or tell other people about it and share that stuff because they're just getting what they need. They're fulfilled in in what they do. Sure,
0: and that's exactly the perfect example of how amazing funeral directors are they're so humble they see things and do things that people you see you don't even see it in the movie Hollywood could not write some of the stories that funeral directors encounter on a daily basis and that just is a perfect example of how beautiful and and how humble they are they don't need don't have the need to go out and share their stories to people and I had that internal monologue also for myself it's like well crap Emma you're totally doing what you shouldn't be doing by sharing your stories but no one's doing it and I really I had enough of these misconceptions and these myths and and I just really wanted to stand up and tell everybody from the you know with all my voice that funeral directors are the most amazing people on this bloody planet no one understands or sees it um, yeah, so I actually had that argument with myself even. It's like, Emma, what are you doing? Like, you should not be sharing this. You should not be telling people, you know, and it's got nothing to do with attention. I actually mm. wanted to do all of this anonymously. I bet well, you did. You did for a long time. Yeah, I didn't, want to, I didn't want anyone to know I was doing it. But, um, you know, I, I'm I'm happy. I'm happy to stand up for everyone else and tell the stories and, it's bloody interesting. <laughs> I, like I'm a story, I'm a storyteller, so it was inevitable it was going to happen. Sorry, <laughs> like, just, I I couldn't keep it to myself. I just couldn't. It's amazing.
1: But it's also it's also just shattering those myths and the the taboos around the subject of death. And I think the more that people are actively talking about it in a, like freely, um, then the easier it's going to be for everybody. And you'll find that. And you sort of touch on it in earlier parts of the book where, you know, Australia is still fairly slow with picking up a lot of these alternative um, options of of burial. And Mm. there's only still, you know, very few options that people have here in comparison to other countries around the world. And maybe it's a case that the more that the general public are embracing and talking about it, um, that you know, the minds will open and then suddenly some of these other options will start to to, to come through over time as well. So, I mean, yes. I think it's just, a, it's a, I, I certainly have not, um, not seen your approaches as, as an attention seeking approach because I mean, as, as, as you said, like you, you had a blog where you didn't put your name against it. And I think just that alone speaks volumes where you're looking at the bigger picture and, and you'll, and you want to give back to to what you've been able to take so much from already. So um, yeah, so I think it's really good. And I think the other thing that's really interesting with this book is, and I think a lot of people these are one of the one of these myths that I think uh, people tend to have with the funeral industry, and we tend to think of um, the the grandparent or the the older generation, and you know, passing away at home. Or the nursing home and things like that, and it's it's usually very. There's very few sort of scenarios or options that you're really going to see, and it's just a case of oh well, we're at the end of their life, and we'll we'll take mm-hmm. them to the funeral home. We'll, we'll make sure they're all presented well. We'll go through the service, and then and then we'll we'll finish off the the process. But you you've spoken about it with me previously, but in this book. There are so many scenarios here, like anything from obviously tragedy, unexpected tragedy, all sorts of ages, right from you know stillborn, right through to the elderly, the the the, the ancient, and, yeah. and but also mm. crime as well, like you know having the police contracts and and going mm. out and and going to these these crime scenes and and collecting these bodies and just seeing seeing people that have experienced the worst in other people, and I think that's just. I mean, that takes such a, such a person to be able to not only just deal with death as a subject, but to also to see human behavior and what's led people to these situations, which I just, I can't even begin to imagine all Um, the different thoughts that you've had over the years of, of seeing these situations in front of you.
0: So, um, I'm so grateful that you brought up the police contract, um, when I was a young funeral director, an F.D.A., my dream was to work for a funeral home that had the police contract. And it wasn't for a morbid, not to fulfil a morbid curiosity or um, going to these tragic, you know, cases. It was not that at all. It was because I really wanted to be there for those who had those horrible ends. No one should, no one's life should end in the way that I've seen. And I felt like being a police contractor, it was a privilege to not only be there at the scene of the uh, suicide or, or crime or accident. I felt like I could be there for them in some small way because it's very it's very different. It's not like a regular transfer where you know the family are there, and you know you take your time and you put a pouch of pop fury on the pillow and it's very you know it's very heartfelt some of the police calls are are so dismal and yeah it it was all sorts it was from yeah children to people my age who just flown off the freeway into a gully like it was just yeah it was such an ordeal Um, they stay with me forever those ones but I felt like I was helping them in a way so that's why I enjoyed the police contract a lot it wasn't the gore it wasn't the you know it was it was being there for them because the family are rarely there with a police contract, with a police call. So it's mm. usually just the constable, the police constables, and us. and uh, it's very rarely the family even know yet or if they have known that you know we take them to the morgue before um, the process begins. So, that was probably the most special time for me in the industry was attending to those deaths, the police calls. I only dedicated the one chapter to that part of my life because, yeah, it's it's quite a sensitive subject. Some of the, the deaths that I came across and I didn't want to, you know, add too much mm. <laughs> misery to it, but they they were pretty, yeah, they were pretty out there, some of the calls that I attended to.
1: I think it just shows, it shows your character and how you've been able to interpret what is an absolutely horrific situation i mean you know it's not just car accidents as well i mean you're seeing the results of of murder you're seeing you're seeing yeah. or self harm and and just
0: self harm I mean, was a massive one yeah, self harm no. and self harm made that was a massive one um that happened all the time it happened so much more more often than what we think or mm. what the general public, you know, you drive, you're drinking a latte and you're, you're driving past these houses and you have no idea there could be a body in that house and they've just taken their own life and that happens so often and they were just such beauty; you just want to hug them and say, oh, I wish I knew you, I I wish I could have helped you because they were just young people who were going through a hard time, You were going into their homes and seeing their rock star posters on the wall, and oh, it was just so gut wrenching when you went to self harm was massive. Um, but I, I can tell you, I've never sped. Ever since I've had the police contract, I have never got a speeding fine. <laughs> I'm just, like, I'm never speeding again. So it saved me a lot of infringement notices. I'll tell you that.
1: Well, I was gonna. I'm I, just
0: like, I, yeah.
1: I was gonna ask you, like, what sort of things? Like, what do you take away from these events? Which, for for most people, oh, they would you'd just be absolutely scarred and. And just curl up into a into a like into a ball and just be a shell of a person because of uh, what you've seen. But you, you you seem to take more out of the situations than most other people.
0: Oh, it just teaches me so. It's it's taught me how to look after myself. I I'm I'm a single woman who doesn't know how to roast a carrot. I'm <laughs> I'm like Bridget. I'm Bridget Jones times fifty. So death <laughs> has taught me how to look after myself. It's taught me, Emma, you need to eat healthy or you're going to end up in the mortuary. Emma, you need to stop, you know, trying to get through that yellow light, amber light because you could die in this intersection. You know, stop, drink, don't drink. You could, you know, it's taught me how to be an adult. It's been amazing. It's taught me. So- Death has saved me. Death has shaped me into a probably very boring adult who doesn't take too many risks anymore. But it's, yeah, it's been such a wonderful learning for me, um, yeah, I, I thank every every deceased person I've ever come across because they've turned me into, like, turned me into the person I am today. Absolutely, they've taught me so much. It's like they're giving me little messages constantly with every single death. It's like, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. Okay, I'm not going to do that. Well, I'm definitely not going to do that. to know where that <laughs> ends up. So, it's been amazing. It's just really helped me along my life journey.
1: But it sounds like you. Like for people, you might learn and say, well, I don't want to do that. But I think a lot of people would do it. Like would, it would come out of fear, like, and start to, you, you wouldn't want to do anything in life because you wouldn't want to leave the house. Cause you're worried about something going to, like something's going to happen. Like someone can run you over or you get into a car accident or somebody's yeah. going to come up and, and, and attack you. But I think just the way that you describe it, it's not, it's not from a fear point of view. It's just, it's almost like you're just getting lessons from other people. Like, you know, from other people's mistakes, you're. You were able just to make a more uh, sort of meaningful life on your on your own terms.
0: It's like going to school a hundred times a year. It was it was every single time I walked into the funeral home. It was like learning a new lesson. You know, it wasn't algebra and it wasn't and burners in your science lab. It was how how to enrich your own life and how to embrace it. It was yeah, the school of life every single day, definitely. Um yeah, it's I just drank it all in. I took it all on board, as if there were a hundred mothers teaching me things. It was yeah, I just felt like I was being cared for with every story that I came across.
1: I'm gonna put you on the spot, but I want I would love for you to describe and if you don't want to, that that's totally cool. But um <laughs> there's one there's a couple of examples in the book where you you're going out to these homes where people um, had been deceased for quite some time. And I think there was one story in particular, and I'm probably blending multiple stories together. I'm sure you'll be able to correct Mm -hmm. me, but um, you're going to a home and I think the position of where this person was, they're on their bed um, and they were, they were decomposing. um, And Mm -hmm. it was just an, like for lack of better term, it was an absolute mess. Um, Maggots, everything there, Um, are you able just to just talk like even whether it's through that or just these types of scenarios that you see? Because I think this is another dimension again, where a lot of people just pass away and just aren't found for, for a long time.
0: Mm. Um, I, yeah, some of, (laughs) some of those cases were intense, um, It used to shock me. It used to shock me and I'd wonder why, how it happened, How can someone be left in this position for so long? But the lady you are talking about in the chapter in the book, she's very, very special to me because she was positioned on the side of the bed. Even though she was decomposing, she was still in the position where she'd gone to take, try and catch her breath. That's how it appeared. It was like, oh, I can't breathe, but then it's escaped her forever. It's just gone, and that was her last breath. And it, you could feel that, even though there wasn't much of her character left. I felt that. I was like, this dear love has sat on the side of the bed and tried to catch her breath, and she couldn't catch it, and here she is two weeks later. Um, and she had this little puff of gray hair on top of her head. She was wearing the coolest nightie. I remember that. And you just try and piece together their character because they're, they're not recognisable anymore. So I would take the opportunity to try and bring them back to life a little bit. Um, I'd ensure that, you know, some of their favourite, with permission, obviously, um, to make sure that that has their favourite pillow or their favourite blanket or, you know, some, they're not just what is left here. This was a person. This was you or, you and I. It was. You know, she was walking down the street a few weeks ago and it's, and it's so, so heartbreaking to find somebody in that state and it always confuses. I just think, wow, how? How, how can no one called you or how can, well, yeah. But then sometimes it's done intentionally. Um, there are a lot of people who take their own life in the middle of nowhere. They don't want to be found. They never intended to be found, but they were. Um, yeah, those cases are very special to me.
1: It's, uh, I mean, I I can't even, I'm just like sort of thinking of what the visuals would be like and, and I don't think anything could, could prepare somebody unless they're actually there and, and doing it. But I mean, just the way- Well, that...
0: luckily you get, pre- <laughs> <laughs> lucky you do get a sort of preparation because you can, you can smell it before you get to the door. So you prepare oh. yourself like, okay, I know what I'm about to walk into, but that's about the only preparation you get because every single- time you have oh my goodness what am I walking into so you put the mask on and you're ready for it so there's a sort of preparation but mentally you can never be prepared I don't think for some of the things that we come across but you know when you're working with the team that I was so blessed to work with you're a family and you pull together and get the job done and when it's done you give each other the biggest hug and you go have a strong coffee and you go tell some jokes so I feel like that those cases brought us together because we thought, holy shit, we've just seen things that no one will ever see. And it brought us together as, as a team. And, yeah, it was just, yeah, as, as dismal and as horrible as it was, it was beautiful at the same time. And it's really hard for anyone to probably ever understand that. But, yeah, it, it's truly special.
1: It. It is is definitely hard to understand that, but I think if you um, <laughs> but I think I think also just when you're talking about the the larger community, like you, the family that you've got in in this this role in this job that you do, and you're all there for the same purpose, you, you, you're all aiming for the same outcome, you've got the same goals in mind, and you work together, and that obviously takes a lot of pressure off the situation, and that's probably adds an extra element to make it. To make it beautiful, to make make the whole situation um, have have an optimistic light, regardless of the 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 centerpiece being the the incident, what you, what you what you're going to um, being something that is traditionally um, you know sad or, or tragic, depending on the circumstances that you're you're walking into. So um, yeah, it's I mean, and I think that's that's once again a good good thing about the book as well. Look, like you're able to describe sort of the extra dimensions to it. It's not just about like. I'll tell you what, like the description, the the amount of detail you went into some of these call outs, like it's just, it's full on. It's, it's really full on. And, and, Ah. and thank you for doing it because I think part of my sort of, it scratches a niche for me because it's entertaining. And I think we Mm -hmm. all, I think we all have a fascination with death and because it doesn't get discussed, we don't get an opportunity to really sort of see it unless it's in some sort of Fictional crime thing, or you know, someone's, yes,
0: someone's, yes, a American Hollywood blockbuster. Yeah, and that's actually, um oh gosh, I have got to give credit to my publishers. They've worked so hard on this mess because I included <laughs> a lot more. I included so much more, and in the edits, like when you're writing a book, you receive your edits several, oh my goodness, several hundred times. Well, me because I'm a bad writer. A good author probably wouldn't have so many edits. But in the margin, you have all these comments and you've got to rework this, rework that. And so much was deleted, well, you know, removed from this particular manuscript. And I'm, at the time, I was a bit upset. I was thinking, no, but I want people to, to feel the rawness of it. I want them to be there with me. But now I'm grateful that they did it because not everybody is going to be comfortable reading some of the things that I probably, you know, wished that was in there from the beginning. But yeah, it went, there was a lot more, there was a
1: lot more, but maybe that's book two. Oh my God, I can't even begin to imagine what's been left out because I tell you what, I mean. A lot. (laughs) I'm, maybe I'm just so vanilla because I'm reading this going, oh my God, like I'm just, I wouldn't say I'm dry reaching from some of the things, but it is very descriptive (laughs) of, of some of the stuff that you're experiencing. And I think also like you mentioned before about sort of, Going out uh, to these situations where a body has been there for quite some time, and the only thing that you've got as preparation is that smell. And when you describe the smell, and you talk about how it lingers, and it's it seeps into your skin or you're you're breathing it yeah. through your nose, um, yeah. or I think I think uh, you know someone farting as well, and and just like <laughs> just and it seeps into your clothes, it's in your house, and I'm just I'm. Just trying to picture like this yeah. smell and how it would just be totally engulfing everything.
0: My house sometimes smelt like death, <laughs> and it did. It did, and that's literally you would take them home with you. It yeah. It sometimes you just could not get it out of some fabrics, and yes, you could smell it in your skin. You could smell it in emissions. You could smell it in your hair. It um yeah, it made its way to places that you never thought it ever would. I, I didn't believe the funeral directors at the beginning of my career when they told me that. Surely not. But yeah, sometimes you could smell it in my home, but you know, lucky for my friends, I'm no longer a funeral director, so you don't have to worry about that anymore. But sometimes, yeah, it's true. Yeah, it definitely is. We 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 funeral funeral directors stink. <laughs> <laughs> We had special, we had special tools. Though we had like special air fresheners, and um, the hospital, we have hospital grade, yeah, scents and everything that we spray all over ourselves. So we try and mask it.
1: Yeah, did did you struggle with that to begin with? Because I think the the I think just you know when you hear about it in pop culture and just you know the way it's described in books and movies, and the smell of death is just something that very few people will ever experience and so I think when people Mm -hmm. don't experience it and they hear about it they think it's probably the most repulsive thing in the world and I'm and I'm sure that it's not the nicest thing in the world but I've never smelled it myself that I'm aware of but did you sort of Mm. struggle to begin with with it's like it's not just a visual experience it's not just you know the sights and the sounds it's 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 all your senses are being attacked Mm. by all these things that are happening around you
0: absolutely it really is um so the sight of death um, did not bother me as much as the the smell. And it's, I don't know how to put this, but depend on how you died is how you smell. And so they could walk into the mortuary and you would you, almost know how they passed away just by the way they smelled sometimes. Mm. Um, for example, um, you know, pro, uh, bowel cancer or... Cancer of the stomach would have a very distinct smell, um, but I won't go into it too much. But it was definitely the harder part of the job, and it, you don't just put a bit of Vicks under your nose like you've seen the movies or <laughs> in the crime that. shows. That does not—that <laughs> does nothing. Um, yeah, so the smell is very is, but you get used to it. And I, I again, I know I sound like a total weirdo, but you get used to it. And it almost by the end, you know, I, I by maybe the first year or two, it was just normal. It was not, you'd walk into the funeral home and you're, you, that's the first thing that you experience was the smell. Um, funeral homes have a smell Well, actually, um, I was in a funeral home just a couple of days ago filming for a, um, a segment that's going to be aired this week on TV mm. and a silly, uh, you know, Dumb blonde me. I walked in, I was like, Oh my god, it smells so good in here! And the funeral dress is all ch- and they'll go, What like death? And I was like, Oh, yeah, actually, that is what I mean. <laughs> it's been so lo- but you get used to it's it, a familiar and it smell. High- it becomes home for you. It's like, Oh, I can smell somebody has passed away. I know it sounds terrible, doesn't it? But it just becomes so normal to you, and now I miss it. So, yeah, it made me sick at first, and now I love it. So, it's just weird. We're weird. Have-
1: how does so the people that you worked with over the years, how have they how have they interpreted you and your character and the way that you've embraced the industry and your work? Because I would assume that you know you sort of described some of these people and they're very selfless, they're humble, they they're there to you know to contribute and, and assist and they they've, you know for most part they've they've got a big heart but you you, you you've got this extrovert, Personality that I see, and and I think the way that you describe things and the way that you verbalise it is just—it seems so different to so many other people. I've never, like, I've never met or seen anybody mm. or listened to anybody ever in my life describe any of this stuff like you. Like, not even oh. just to spin at the perspective of, of yeah,
0: you're like, gonna you're gonna my mascara, <laughs> my makeup,
1: and <laughs> and it's so but it's so refreshing. But how? how have people interpreted you? Because have you found other people that have been similar to you or if you found people that you sort of, uh, have learned from? Are, yeah.
0: They are the kindest words. Thank you. That mean that's, yeah, you just made my heart burst, <laughs> but all funeral directors, most funeral directors are the same. Um, I'm just one of many who do embrace the funeral industry the same way we will go to the lunchroom at the end of the day and just, you know, it's just smiles and laughs and sharing stories. And it's like a Christmas party every day because we're like, holy shit, we're alive guys. So <laughs> yeah, it's I, I'm not the only one. I'm just the only one out there at the moment in Australia with a book out, but I, I represent many where they're all the same. They're all so grateful. They're all so they're just, Yeah, I know a half on, but they're the most beautiful people. As far as family and friends, though, it wasn't something I really talked openly about until now. I kept it to myself a lot. It wasn't really the topic at dinner, especially Christmas dinner. You don't (laughs) want to be talking about that over turkey. So it wasn't really something that I really openly spoke about. It was something that just the family, like the funeral family shared, not my actual personal family. Um, And it's not until now that... You know, I've kind of shown my family and friends this book that a lot of them didn't even know I'd written, that I'm now talking about it. So, um, yeah, I think I, I still see a few frowns. I'm boosting the Botox industry. Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of people don't get it, I don't think, but that's okay. I, yeah, I'm a bit different and that's all right. <laughs>
1: Who wants to be normal anyway? Well, well, that's it. It's, it. Life's a bit boring if you're just the same as everybody else, yeah, and you've got to but... have your own spin on on life. And I think that's what's refreshing about it, and that's what hopefully will will uh, will bring success for the book as well, because it's got that it's got that different spin on it. It's got that different outlook Aww. on life, and 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 something that hasn't been spoken about a lot uh, at all. Have you found people? I mean, I know that's only really been recently that you you're more active and you're more out there talking about it to sort of more and more people. But have you started to find that potentially there's going to be other people that are going to start to get inspired by what you're talking about and may want to go into the industry itself?
0: Oh, that would be, if I could just get one person into the, oh yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes. If I could, you know, get more young people embracing it and, and throwing on a funeral director suit and getting out in that hearse, helping the world. That would be a dream come true for me. Like no more of this. Oh, you, you know, those career days you have at school, yeah. how many students put their hands up and say, oh, I want to be a funeral director. I would love it if like teenagers started putting their hands up. I want to be a funeral director. I want to be a mortician. I'm like, yes, that'd be the coolest thing ever. It is the coolest job. It is, But like you say, it does it takes strength, it takes a huge resilient, like a massive part of you has to be so resilient, but you need a massive heart. If I can get more young people into the industry, oh my goodness. High five.
1: Is it is it an industry that you've seen just from first hand experience that it is hard getting people to, to sign up if there's if there's a vacancy and, and you're putting putting a notice out there to try and you know, get applications, is it is it tough or and are you only finding people that are probably a little bit more older, that have had a bit more life experience, that are putting up their hand for, for these types of jobs?
0: It's hard to find people, yeah, it's really hard to find the right people sometimes. I worked at a funeral home, it was a smaller funeral home, a smaller firm, and we were only a team of eight. And it was really hard, I remember then, the bigger companies uh, don't have a problem because Yeah, they're they're massive. They have a whole, you know, process and, yeah, they're never short of staff. But for the smaller funeral homes, it's quite hard for people because it's tougher than they think. Mm -hmm. It's not just standing by a hearse with some pretty lipstick on and standing all poised and perfect. They don't realise the guts of it behind the scenes Mm. so we get all these applicants are like yes I want to be a funeral director and then he throws them on a transfer elbow deep in a decomp and I oh shit I can't (laughs) do this so it is hard it's really hard to find the right person that can do everything it's um yeah whereas the bigger companies have a person for each role um so you'll have transfer crew that only do the transfers so they build up that resilience and and they you know they're good on that but whereas the funeral arranger may never go on a transfer so it's a bit easier because you can employ people for those certain positions but in a smaller funeral home it's definitely a challenge because you do everything you're no longer an fda or a conductor or an arranger you're everything Mm. you do all the roles so in a funeral home that only has a small team, it's almost impossible to find the right candidate. But when you do, they never leave. I know funeral funeral directors have been in funeral homes for forty years; they've never left.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, it's such a it's such an unusual unusual uh, job and industry to be in, and I guess just because it's so intense and can be so personal, that's probably one of the big reasons why people become so dedicated to it. You can't... It's something you can just easily walk away. And I know that you've done that, but I would assume that, you know, doing this book, this is a a temporary sort of uh, pause on your career in the industry and hopefully... Um, you'll be back sooner rather than later, and you'll know, oh, get back into it. I love
0: that word, a pause. It's definitely a pause. I and, mean, you know, going back to the, um, the the people wanting to be employed, I, it's not it's not a job people think to do. I think people forget that it exists.
1: Mm.
0: You know, people don't go to school and go, oh, I want to be a mortician, or um, I want, you know, it's, it is a, usually, typically, a career people discover later in life. So a lot of paramedics, um, police officers, I've worked alongside retired police officers, uh, beauty therapists who, you know, oh, I'm gonna start sharing my makeup skills with the dead. So usually it is people who have already had a career who stumble their way into the funeral home somehow. It is rare for someone to come straight out of school and become a mortician. I was just a little bit different. I knew from eight years old that's what I wanted to do. And, but I don't think that's common. I was just lucky I got my foot in the door at 21. I think I was 22, my very first job in the funeral home. That's pretty rare. There's not many young morticians and funeral directors because not many people remember that that's a job out there.
1: Yeah, you're you're definitely unique.
0: You did. <laughs> <unique. laughs> well, it's not exactly promoted on TV, you know, no, or university career days. I'm a funeral director.
1: It's not. But yeah. I
0: was just lucky. I was very lucky. I feel. I feel very lucky.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I I could talk to you for, for so long, but to be honest, I I probably rather just uh, let you go now, so I can finish your book. Um,
0: <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I hope you enjoy.
1: But um, look. Once again, like I said at the start, and I'll continue to say it to you, like, congrats, like, well done. Like, it's it's such a massive feat to to put a book together of any type. But I think it's not just the book, which is a difficult task. It's what you put in the book, which would have been such a a massive journey for yourself to try and just battle your own sort of roadblocks and your, you know, I'm going to use a very cliched term, but your your own inner demons. And worrying about sort of how it's going to, you know, be received and the reactions and the consequences and the potential opportunities and the benefits and all these sort of things. <laughs> and, um, and, here, and here it is, it's a book. And so it's just, it's, it's, it's inspiring to see somebody sort of go through that process. And, and I mean, I'm excited to see how it, how it goes for you because, um, I mean, you haven't got a small publisher with you. You've got You've got one of the big guns. So that's pretty cool. So I ex- How did that happen,
0: Andy? How uh, did that happen? I don't know, but you you, <laughs> you, you did well. But yeah, thank you, you, you did well. Thank and, you so
1: much. And, no thank doubt. You, and
0: thank you for being there from day one. You were there from day one. So thank you.
1: Oh, my pleasure. I I mean any any excuse <laughs> to to talk about this kind of stuff, it's I mean, you know, i I'm, I'm coming from a different angle, but I'm definitely fascinated by it and uh, it's it's very entertaining to hear the stories and now and now to read them as well. So it's great. Awesome. And um, one of the last questions I was going to ask you is, um, have you have you improved your diet at all? Because all through the book, all I'm reading is that you're eating mac and cheese and two-minute noodles. Um, Yay! You, do you, do you, have, you, have you branched out? I
0: found a slow cooker. Oh, and <laughs> <laughs> Yay! When I was going through my divorce, I swear I turned into you know a noodle like all I ate was pasta it's all I lived on but yes I know how to you know make casseroles and things now I'm much healthier now <laughs> it's- <laughs> I thought... But, you know, when you're a funeral director, your diet is crap. You eat burgers on the road, you eat meat pies and stuff them down when you can, and you don't bother cooking because the phone will ring, so you just eat a packet of chips. So there's a, there's a, it's a pretty well-known – if you're a funeral director, you have a pretty shit health <laughs> because <you> just, <laughs> <laughs> coffee and junk food is how you survive. So ever since I've actually left the industry, I've been eating really well.
1: Oh, well, well, well done because, um, yeah, I was really going – Oh geez, I don't know if this is sustainable for yourself. And I mean, that's on
0: purpose. That was my little, <laughs> my little, um, you know, symbolism thrown in there. As a funeral director, you don't live on good food. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, and and look, there was a there was I think there's one moment uh, in the book where it was one of the contract call outs that you did, and uh, it must have been a road accident or something like that. And um, one of the police officers was hiding behind one of the cars eating, <laughs> eating a, a kebab. kebab. Yeah, yeah, and. <laughs> And I laughed when I read it, but then I just realised that, man, you would have no time to just, just to, no. to have a break. You, you just you, it's whatever you can, whenever you can, just any opportunity, and it would become this most absurd set of circumstances. But it just doesn't become that anymore because ultimately you've
0: yeah. you you've got to put something. You in miss out. You miss out. On a lot of home-cooked meals, definitely. Oh, so wow. I'm loving that. I've, I've got fatter,
1: but that's okay. <laughs> <I'll play and
0: laughs> I'm healthy. That's
1: good. That's the <laughs> main thing. Well, Emma, thank, thanks so much. Thanks for thank making me a part you. of your book. And um, I'm looking forward to getting this out. And I hope a bunch of people buy it. I'm going to put a link in and so people can grab it. Is is um, Booktopia probably the best place? I mean, it's going to be everywhere, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yes, and HarperCollins. It will be on oh, it'll be on bookshelves next week. So oh, Angus and Robertson, um Big W, yeah, or everywhere where you find a book on the shelf, hopefully mine will be there.
1: Amazing. Absolutely amazing. All right, well, <laughs> I'll let you go. And I think we should I think we should catch up sometime down the track. Maybe, I don't know, maybe later in the year or next year and um I'd be yeah. interested to see what the reaction is and uh and what i'm um, no doubt there's going to be a bunch of unpredictable moments coming up for you with uh with this book and your career and i'm fascinated to see yeah. what, what happens oh, next.
0: i'd be privileged i'd love to do that with you thank you we'll do this until we're in our nursing homes <laughs> <laughs> deal
1: all right done yeah. <laughs> all right folks you know i love a little bit of a call to action so Friends, please, if you're out and about, in your travels, you're at the shops, whatever, stop by a bookstore and see if you can find Emma Jane Holmes' latest book, One Last Dance. It is out through HarperCollins Australia. Nice and easy to find. Big publishing uh, company, so it should be plastered all over the country. If you can't see it, go and ask uh, the store for it and get them to order it in. But if you like ordering books online like I do, I'll have uh, links to places like Booktobia and, and and the likes uh, in the show notes over at andysocial.net and andydaling.net But uh, definitely go and pick it up. I really recommend it. Um, definitely biased because I've had Emma on the podcast now twice. Uh, and she's had an absolute delight to talk to. But um, it is actually a really fascinating read. There is some hardcore, gory, full-on details in here. But it's all been documented and written in a very tasteful and respectful way. And I think uh, I think a lot of you people will. Get uh, a real kick out of this, so uh, definitely go and check that out. And I'll have links in the show notes over at andysocial.net and andydowning.net. Make sure you reach out to Emma as well on Instagram, instagram.com/slash emma jane Holmes author. And, uh, let her know what you, what you thought of the episode and, uh, maybe take a photo and tag her on Instagram. If you're on Instagram and, uh, let her know when you, when you pick up a book as well, before we wrap it up, of course, Patreon, Patreon, patreon.com slash Andy Dealing. As I've been talking about for the last several episodes, the focus for the foreseeable future is to get as many $1 supporters as possible. $1 a month, dirt cheap, set and forget. You won't even notice it. You got like the same thing. I keep saying all over and over again, I'm a broken record but I want more and more of you guys to jump on board and, uh, and back me in the podcast. It's just a, it's a fantastic way to support. Um, it keeps me highly motivated and, um, already the, the community that has, uh, that has been building over the past several months. Uh, we're getting, oh, what would it be? It'll be 12 months in May of this year. So we're not even 12 months and we've already got a lovely community of people that have been significantly contributing to the podcast. So a dollar doesn't get you anything apart from a warm and fuzzy feeling, especially for some of you folks that have been listening to more than a couple of episodes. It'd be absolutely fantastic if you if you, if you, you back the podcast in that way. But if you want access to the Patreon podcast, so go back a couple of episodes and you'll listen to the Crazy Talk episode with a bit of karaoke mixed in, a bit of dumb stuff in there. Uh, if you want access to that every week and if you want access to free shit, a lot of free shit. I, I'm getting, I'm getting lots of free stuff in the post from lots of different people and I'd love to get it out to, to good homes. So my community, my, my Patreon friends, I want them to have first dibs on anything free that I get. And I want to get out of my hands to other people and, uh, free merch, free anti-social merch, team of t-shirts, blue boy t-shirts. um, USB passes with the first 100 episodes of the podcast plus bonus content. All this stuff is available via the additional tiers over at Patreon. So go and have a sticky beat. Go and check it out. At the very least, I would love to have you on uh, on the $1 tier. Uh, let's build this community. Let's make it bigger and better, and we can get more fantastic guests like Emma on the podcast over the coming days, weeks, months, years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So patreon.com slash Andy Go and check it out next week's episode. Now I actually know what's happening next week. I've uh, I actually made a note to remind myself what uh, what next week's episodes are going to look like. So here we go. Let's give you a hint. So Monday next week. So we've got as you know two episodes a week. Monday next week is uh it's an episode that I've never done before. Uh, it is I guess it's a guest, but it's not for the it's not for the it's not for the point of the guest. The guest is helping me present something. And together we're going to Uh, present something to you all um, and talk about it at length. And um, I think you might enjoy it. Uh, So um, if you want a sneak peek of what that might be, uh, go and check out uh, my social media pages on Friday, the 5th of March, and you'll see a little announcement. And then, uh, Monday, you might get a bit of a gist of what I'm talking about. And we'll, uh, we'll talk more then, uh, the second podcast episode later in the week, uh, will be another Australian musician, a Sydney musician, a band that has, uh, hasn't been around for a long time, is not a metal band, a little bit outside of the metal, uh, sphere, but an absolute legend, uh, a great band. I'm a big fan of this band and, um, I'm psyched to, to share that episode with you all as well. So. Until then, I've got to stop crapping on. Enjoy yourselves. Enjoy yourselves. I don't even know. I'm trying to wrap up this episode in the right way. Uh, Enjoy yourselves. Okay, let's just do that. Enjoy yourselves. Catch you later. Bye. Larry. Larry, please.